Thanks for checking out this podcast from SWGFL. We're here to help teachers and education professionals support children and young people in all that they do online. Just to avoid any confusion, in autumn of 2022, we branded our podcasts as Interface. This is actually one of our older episodes from before the big rebrand, so it might sound a little bit different. However, there's still the same top quality advice and expert support throughout. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this Safeguarding Children online podcast brought to you by SWGFL. Welcome to the SWGFL podcast, the free definitive guide helping educators keep young people and yourselves safe online. I'm Jess Macbeth here with Gareth Court. Hello, Gareth. Hi, Jess. Hi, everyone. We are online safety consultants with SWGFL, partner of the UK Safer Internet Centre. Welcome. Now, Gareth. I believe you said you have an interesting question for me. I do. I do, Jess. It's very exciting. I've only just found it out, although apparently someone found out four years ago. So you know me, I'm a a little bit behind the trend. But quick question for you. Does the country Finland exist? (laughs) Yes. Wrong. Uh, Although (laughs) you're going to tell me no. (laughs) There's a Reddit theory that started in 2016 that claims that Finland doesn't exist. Russia and Japan invented it back in the early 1900s to allow Japan to fish in the waters without consequence. And apparently Finland has lived on in the memories of all the countries around it. They've kept it secret as a kind of a a model of of a perfect kind of culture, sort of an advanced culture that really thinks about the, the rights of its citizens and democracy and everything else. So, So Finland doesn't exist. It's just an idea. Mind blowing. Wow. Okay. Um, I wasn't quite expecting that. I, I thought that was something exciting. Gosh. Okay. So, yeah, uh, we're talking about misinformation today. Yeah, you might. Yeah, you might <laughs> if you hadn't guessed already, yes, no, this isn't the practical joke episode of our podcast. No, yeah. So, we are going to talk about misinformation. <laughs> okay. I, I've got a question for you. Uh, which age group is most likely to share fake news? Right. I've got three age groups for you. Is it the under 30s? Is it 30 to 65s? Or is it over 65s? What do you think, Gareth? Oh, hold on. I'm just trying. How old's the President of the United States? Let me figure this <gasps> out first. Gareth, oh, you, you can, can't say things you like that. You can say things like that, absolutely, <laughs> especially when they actually do. Um, do they? <laughs> uh, sorry, give, give me that. So what were the two? So the Under 30s. Again? Yep. So which age group is most likely to share fake news? Is it under 30, 30 to 65, or over 65s? I'm going to go with over 65s. Oh, well done. Yes. Ding, ding. Yes. Cool. So it was my in job, yes. <laughs> it was in the journal. Science, science advances. Over 65s, uh, according to the research, uh, shared seven times as many fake news articles on Facebook than the youngest age group, than the under 30s. So seven times more likely. That's Why do you think that is? Um, Why did you think an over 65s? Well, an older generation probably more reliant on on media they probably view the internet in the same lens as traditional media in that they because it's put up there then it that it's been fact checked and it's been edited and therefore it must be must be reliable 
Yeah, I, I don't know. In the in the research article, they obviously they 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 don't know. They give a couple of um, suggestions. So you know, the the, the basic one is that they they just haven't received uh, media literacy education. Okay. So the kind of basic things that. Um, other people might look for to check whether an article is true or false they just they haven't got that that kind of basic training so they might be more likely to rely on social clues you know like the like how many likes something has or how many shares it's got that kind of thing there's also in there they suggest perhaps there might be some relationship with um with memory and kind of ability to um to kind of retain information or um judge its quality that kind of stuff but um yeah really interesting that is, really interesting that when you think really about media literacy training mm-hmm. and, and here we are doing a podcast people. for educators of, of children yeah. and young people and, and clearly some of the education might <laughs> no. need to be going elsewhere <laughs> to get the grandparents in that's what <laughs> that's what it is i know so, Bring them uh, into class. so first first tip of this podcast is run an education session for grandparents at your school is that is that what that's we're saying it, yeah. okay Step number one <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess we should probably talk a little bit more about what in, in, misinformation is then, really, to kind of fill in some of those blanks for, for people listening, because yes. people may know more, some people may know yes. less. And I use the term fake news, which, of course, is a big no-no, isn't it, in media literacy land? Oh, I say passe. Um, it, was, it was word of the year in Collins English Dictionary three years ago, wasn't it? Which is quite some feat being two words, but never mind. Um, now, you see, I'm wondering if everything you tell me is true now. <laughs> no, that, that is true. You <laughs> can check that up. one. But I don't understand how a two-word phrase to become word of the year but anyway but yeah it's 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 bandied around a lot isn't it it is and uh and it's 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 not particularly um liked for a few different reasons i think one of them is that i think you know its original meaning was something that was fake right and then it started to be to turn into something that I disagree with, right? So you describe something as fake news because you didn't like it. Yes. Uh, but also it's this binary thing. Yeah, so it suggests that something's either true or false and it isn't like that, is it? No. So particularly when you look at, at things like propaganda, there are, there are different types of propaganda and you've got you've got propaganda that's used for positive purposes where people people are giving accurate factual information based on on good evidence or good reliable sources to try and get a message across to get people to do something usually something positive you've got the opposite end of the spectrum where people are are lying or they're making things up or they you know you know they they're using fake sources of information to try and push a message push a message across to try and get people to do it and then you've got that whole great big wodge in the middle haven't you of of where people you know pick and choose their sources or they might use a source of information that they think is reliable and trustworthy who actually isn't um as a way of kind of pushing their point or pushing advice or pushing people to to go and do something or to take some kind of action and that's where it gets really really messy and really tricky Mm, yes I, I I wonder about all of this. You know, I wonder how much we have been, because actually we've been teaching about kind of fake news, media literacy for a while now, I think, haven't we? There's 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 a lot of it in the discussion about it in the media. Um, there's lots of tips out there. Um, there are resources for educators about, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. But I wonder how, if it's, how simplistic it is, whether it works. Yeah, I think you're right. And I've, I don't know if you've ever had this experience and this is this is not to 
to put down schools or teachers in any way. But sometimes I find when I go into schools, particularly primary schools, and I, I talk about this and I talk about what's real or fake on the internet, is is things like Wikipedia very quickly comes up as a topic of conversation. Um, and it and it kind of seems to be that that children, particularly in recent years, have have kind of been told or taught that that Wikipedia isn't a good source of information um, purely on the basis that people can change it. And and while there is a certain degree of truth in that, you're absolutely right. You know, people can change information on a website. You can never be guaranteed that you're going to get good information. Um, it's it's a bit dangerous to kind of completely dismiss it as a good source of information or a good starting point. Because actually, there's there's loads of good stuff on Wikipedia. You know, I constantly go to Wikipedia. If I, if I come across a topic and I've got no knowledge of it, Wikipedia is actually a great kind of place to start. But you kind of have to move on from there and do some other from some other things. So I think there's again going back to that idea you're saying of like binary views on this is is that it's sometimes dangerous to kind of say that that something can never be trusted or something can always be trusted because the reality is 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 that it very much depends on the context and what you're looking for and who said it and what their motives are. Yeah, motives and emotional impact. Yeah, that's the yeah. big one, isn't it? How it makes you feel. I was there was something I came across recently it talked about um it's not it's not outrage that you know stuff that makes you feel outraged that you're most likely to share it's stuff that totally you go yes I knew it <laughs> you know it's that feeling of absolutely you know this is the evidence I've been looking for that's the kind of stuff um that we're more likely to share that but the that, other oh, sorry go on sorry I was gonna say that's and that kind of makes sense doesn't it really because if you think about it you're you're probably going to be more more drawn to things particularly things online that that kind of side with your viewpoint or back up the things that you thought were were right or true in the first place you surely you're probably going to be more likely to go with those rather than something that says no you were completely wrong and you've completely misunderstood it yes what about the role of tech in all of this like what is the role well this is yeah this is where technology really complicates things doesn't it because yeah, particularly at that point of of finding things that back up your viewpoint is, you know, we've known for a long time that social media algorithms are designed to show you more of the stuff that you like or more of the stuff that you've already been interacting with. So, of course, if you start down a path on social media or on YouTube or another video sharing site of watching things or interacting with things that align with your viewpoint and are backing that up, even though that viewpoint might be might be flawed or might have already been disproved, you're going to keep seeing and encountering the same kind of stuff to back it up. And that's this whole idea of, of filter bubbles of just constant or even of echo chambers where you're, you're constantly hearing the same views repeated that reinforce your own views and beliefs. And that's, that can be a very yeah, dangerous Yeah, so thing. it becomes kind of normalised. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a huge thing, wasn't there, well, really over the last couple of years about algorithms, not just not just presenting you with the same stuff that you already like, but taking you down a more extreme route right so the classic one was the youtube autoplay so and the recommendation algorithm so if you search for something and just let it autoplay run that it would take you down ever increasing clickbait type content Mm. um into more and a more extreme perspective of whatever it was so that could be kind of political content that takes you down say far right but it could be really benign content i think the example i read was um looking at a video about jogging and if you let autoplay run, you end up you end up watching something about ultramarathons. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. So, but my understanding is that there have been lots of steps taken to address, you know, address the kind of algorithm there, as well as straightforwardly remove some of the more um, dangerous or extreme um, 
content. I'm a bit skeptical about it all though, because obviously the whole that whole system of algorithm recommendation, you know, clickbait content is based on the, you know, it's, it's the screen time model. Yeah, it's it's getting stuff for free, keeping you on screen, taking your data. So I'm not sure how fundamentally you're going to change some of the problems unless you look fundamentally at the the structure sitting behind it. It's it's really fascinating. Now the whole conspiracy theory angle. I mean, I'm regularly talking to people now who know people who believe the Earth is flat. <laughs> really? Totally. Yeah. Oh my mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure what to, to say that? on that one. <laughs> well, that this yeah this sort of takes you down the. This is where you start to understand that facts, you know, fact checking or facts as a as a rebuttal doesn't work. Yeah, I, I you know guess, this is this is this is so much bigger. I guess that also just going back to you talking about YouTube and uh, recommended content and and autoplays, it also highlights the the prevalence of uh, online video and how powerful video particularly can be now in in persuading people and persuading views. Because because when you were talking about that, it just made me throw up the. In, in my head, the idea of, of deep fakes and this whole idea of, of fake video content that can be created by people now purely using technology. So I don't know if you saw just before the general election in the UK in, in, at the end of 2019, two, two videos emerged online and did the rounds. One of Boris Johnson saying that he thought that Jeremy Corbyn should become the new prime minister. And uh, one of Jeremy Corbyn saying that Boris Johnson should remain prime minister. And both of them were, were deep fakes. They were, they were videos where they'd used uh, like a, an actor who sounded like those people. Uh, and then they recorded their voice and they used it to lip sync into an existing video of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn to create videos that have never existed of those two politicians saying and doing things that they, that they wouldn't have naturally done. Um, and that's really hard. Mm. I mean, yeah. How do you, how do you just so do that? I mean, that... This is where it starts to take you into, I suppose, phase two of of the fake news misinformation thing. So, like, phase one was, you know, I don't know, check check how good something looks. Is it out making ridiculous claims? Has it got spelling mistakes? You know, who said it? it was the sort of basics. And then phase two is, like, <laughs> can you trust anything? You know, we're, we're sort of seeing people actually turn away en masse from traditional you know, sources of, of, of public information. Um, the cynicism is coming in. And I, I wonder where, as educators, we have been teaching critical thinking. And I wonder how far that takes, you know, are we, are we creating a generation of cynics, you know? And, and what's, the, what's the sort of bigger impact of all of that? Oh, gosh, I'm a bit doom and gloom today. <laughs> <laughs> we started so brightly, didn't we, Jess? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Oh, dear. It's, no, I, think, mm. I think you're right to raise that point, though. I think it's... It is really important to consider the way that we're talking to children and young people about this, regardless of the fact that apparently they're not the ones spreading it all online, uh, according to according to your question at the start. But it's it it does highlight the importance of balancing this out and and teaching a wide range of strategies. And as you said, those traditional ones of does it look right? Is it spelt correctly? You know, where did it come from? Are are useful starting points? But I think it it actually requires that deeper understanding of of human beings and motivations and actions to kind of sometimes get to the bottom of these things. And you mentioned earlier things like emotional response. That's a really important thing is, you know, if something has been put out there purported to be fact in a video or a news story or whatever, and it shocks you, 
is it because it's been designed to shock you? Is it because it is genuinely shocking based on the information that you've suddenly come across? It's, I, I think it's really important to, to kind of gauge your emotional reaction to that um, and consider what to do next. Um, yeah. Mm. The other thing that's popped into my head, of course, is the whole thing that's happening with tech companies. So we're, we're, we're still... You know, we're still in that situation of going, are they responsible for content? Should they, you know, take certain content down? How politicized is that? Whose responsibility is it? Who decides what's true? All that kind of stuff. Um, it's really kicking off. Yeah, uh, I think the right water now. has been muddied in recent years by the the explosion of social media and the type of people that are on social media. So, you know, we've just been talking about like conspiracy theories that, you know, may have been formed by individuals or small groups and they're getting them out there you know, to influence other people or, you know, to even potentially mobilize other people to do something or believe something. But then of course, you've got you've got politicians using social media as well and, and saying things that that aren't always accurate or are based on, uh, you know, inaccurate information. No, really? <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if this is a new phenomenon. But no, it, you know, so, so social media companies are grappling with with individuals and groups who are who are spreading false information or misleading information that can influence belief and behavior. But then you've got public figures or people of public interest mm. with saying things. And that's a trickier position, isn't it? Particularly if they're in positions of power as to, as to how far social media companies can go to, um, to flag up something that might be considered inaccurate or even to the point of, do they have the right to censor things if what a public figure has said, which is therefore essentially in the public interest, you know, it, it has almost has a right to be said or reported on. Is it right to censor those things if those things are deemed to be inaccurate or false? So this, I think, would be a great conversation to have with, you know, secondary level students. And I think there's something we're back to this thing about private companies. So, you know, um, what we're talking about here, of course, is kind of right to information and kind of public service type stuff. But these are private companies. so. Maybe it is up to them to manage their own space, say what they think is appropriate or do, do you know what I mean? Like there's there's something there that we haven't quite grappled with, I suppose, because they're not they're not bound to the same conditions. Uh, they don't sit within the structure that we previously had <laughs> about kind of pr providing balanced information and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's, it's a really and should they be, uh, you know, or is it just a private space and that's just how it is? And, you know. You're right. I, it's there. There are a number of challenges, aren't there? Because they're not public services; they are private companies. No, no mm. one forces you to use Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. That is, that is your choice if you want to express yourself in, in that way. So, I, I guess it throws up the the difficult question that's long plagued this area, hasn't it? As are they publishers, the social mm. media companies? Are they editors? Are they just platforms to allow expression? But then, of course, if the expression that's happening on your platform is is hateful or inciting violence or hatred or um you know sharing content that does harm where where does your responsibility lie in curtailing that or blocking that or censoring that it's it's a really tricky area to manage and because every single situation is 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 steeped in context it's based on the context of that situation and and even then you've got a global network like say facebook with you know two and a half billion users that, that operates the world over where the context may be the case in one country but very different in another country and it it yeah. shows, doesn't it that that there's only this this argument's going to rage on but there's only so much technology companies i think are ever going to be able to 
do around this. They're never going to be able to provide assurances of, if you like, quality journalism in the same way that that established journalistic companies and organisations are, or you know, like the BBC and and you know the the newspaper industry in the UK are going to be able to provide assurances. I think there's limits there. Yeah, yeah, and it's the speed. It's the fact that. Well, we create the content. I mean, what they do is they they amplify it, but we create it, right? They, they don't they don't make any of this stuff, and it's an amazing business model. <laughs> you know, they don't have to employ anybody to create anything because we do it all. Um, but so we create all of the stuff. They amplify it, but then I don't know. I think it, I think this idea of of them adding on, fa- you know, there's a lot of work with fact checkers, isn't there? Starting to flag content. Um, but should they, you know, should they, should they flag it? Should they remove it? Should, should it be, should it stay there, but just not be amplified so that not more people see it? We've seen some really interesting stuff happening. Didn't, wasn't it WhatsApp that, that prevented, you know, multiple forwarding of, of, of something because, um, because misinformation was, was kind of spreading like wildfire yes. with real life. Yeah, um, that's right. And they, they had done that previously, hadn't they? I can't remember which country mm. they used that before. Yes, it was, yeah. But they mm-hmm. found it had been very effective to to stop the spread of conspiracy theories. And so they, they put it in place around conspiracy theories that are popping up around coronavirus to, to prevent exactly that same kind of thing from happening again. So uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's a great example of technology being used for a positive purpose where, where a clear threat has been identified and it, they're taking steps to to reduce that threat. Of course, it's... As I said, it's, it's context dependent, though, because what many people would perceive to be a threat in that conspiracy theory, other people mm-hmm. would consider to be censorship of what they believe to be the truth. Or well, I think, to get out yeah. There. I mean, the whole conspiracy thing is, is conspiracy theory thing is really interesting because, you know, people do do bad stuff, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there are terrible things that happen and we do need to be you know, on our toes and, and, and mindful and critical and not just take everything at face value. But there's something a little bit different about these, about conspiracy theories where the narrative is about, you know, as a kind of kind of group identity, you know, it's this, this idea that there's some malevolence out there, you know, purposefully trying to get us, you know, it's like putting it all together. Now it makes sense. And I think it feeds some, particularly where we are, you know, not feeling, we're not feeling um, certain about stuff, you know, where, where a lot of people are feeling out of control or, you know, powerless, this kind of thing. This is where uh, this sort of conspiracy theory stuff flourishes. Yeah. I- <laughs> so it, it kind of feeds into sort of the wider, you know, the, the pandemic and the kind of political polarizing that's going on all this kind of stuff feeds that 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 aspect of people looking for an answer um which is i think quite worrying i i agree and i think if you look at the type of conspiracy theories that have come to light during lockdown and and during uh spread of coronavirus it it does very much reflect that doesn't it It things you know the most the most popular one the the whole one about 5g masks causing coronavirus which scientists have already you know debunked as being biologically and physically impossible just not possible with anything that we know about about science currently and yet it's led to to people going out and setting fire to 5g masts not just uh in this country i was just reading this morning actually an article on the bbc talking about how 
it's spread to other countries. They've been tracking the spread of this conspiracy theory. And so countries like Bolivia, that don't even have a 5G infrastructure, it's led to people going and setting fire to masts there as well um, because they, they perceive those to be a threat. Uh, and you're right. It, it, I, th- I think that really highlights the importance of what these conspiracy theories are trying to get you to do. And I think that's a really important talking point for young people is what is the motive behind these kind of mm. messages and these stories that you're hearing online? What is it actually trying to get you to do? And if it's trying to get you to do something that potentially causes hurt or harm to other people, or in the case of the 5G1 destruction of property, then you really have to question how valid that particular viewpoint is. Mm. Yeah, totally. Let's talk then about what what resources there are for educators. Because we're we're kind of saying lots of things, you know. <laughs> do this, do this, do this. Lots of things not to do, and lots of things to do, and it feels like, yeah, wow. Where do you start? It's and uh, uh, um, we've got this. I mean, there are. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. So, uh, you're right. It's a massive. It's a massive area, and I think, I think it's really important to understand that you can't always cover all of it, and you can't necessarily give your your students or the young people you work with like certainty about this area. I think there's a, there's a lot of grey areas. So I think it's the first point. Yeah, and I think, you know, so lots of different resources that, that are around. Um, I always point people to Full Fact, which is a fact-checking agency. So that's particularly good for kind of, it's got like Facebook viral post-checking and lots of coronavirus stuff. Um, and there are, you know, various different teaching resources around as well. Um, Alongside those two, I, um, obviously there's Snopes, which it, is quite famous, which is, is mm. American-owned Snopes, I think. So sometimes I think, it, yeah, it's American, it, it? it does kind of lean a bit more on, on things that are happening in America. Um, but close to home, obviously BBC and Channel 4 both have their reality check and fact check teams. They're very good. And BBC reality check team have been in overdrive since lockdown, I think, writing articles and, you know, keeping keeping track of these kind of things. Not Not just conspiracy theories, but things that public figures have said in press statements releases things like that they they, they fact check those kind of things as well to mm. look, look into the where they've drawn that information from and they make certain claims or or quote certain statistics so i think those are really useful sources as well yeah a lot of the educational materials that i've i've come across and that i've seen in development generally tend to show you something they'll give you an example of something uh and say you know is it do you, do you believe this um <clears throat> is it false is it true why and use that as a basis to develop those kind of critical, critical thinking skills. Um, there is, I mean, one one of them that I um, had come across was this idea of being able to check. So, I think sometimes we forget that uh, when people are drawn into a certain perspective, it's not because they're stupid, <laughs> you know, and it's not because they just haven't heard the facts. It's because what's been presented to them is utterly convincing. So, you know, it may reference facts or it may reference anecdotes, uh, some of which might be true. Um, and it might do so in a really kind of compelling and convincing way. So people are drawn into all of this thing. And then once they've once they've got drawn into it, you can't kind of get them out of it with facts. So I think there's, you know, I think we need to recognize that the level of sophistication in the techniques that are used to get people to understand something is high. Uh, and we, you know, there, there are things about us and the way our brains work as well that we, you know, we're more likely to believe something when it's repeated, right? More likely to believe something uh, the first time we hear about it. And then even if subsequently it's it's debunked, we're still psychologically more likely to hang on to our kind of initial impression. Images are really important. 
So sometimes you'll see, um, uh, you might see an article where there's an image that's that's being used. It's a really powerful image, which actually has nothing to do with the article, but it's just been put there to give you a certain sense or understanding. Oh, uh, and it's, it's easier. Yeah, it's easier to process images as well. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're quite lazy, is my understanding, in our thinking. We don't tend to logically think something through. We just kind of, we kind of go through the, the easiest route to something. Uh, to just believe it so and of course speaking to our biases as well so I think there's something here about understanding the manipulative techniques as well but the one thing I wanted to mention was I'm not a huge fan of and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this is is teaching children to create fake news as a way of helping them to understand how it works so that they can then not get drawn in by it oh what do you think of that I quite like it Okay. To explain why I like it first. Yeah, no, go for it. I quite like it because the the reason that fake news works in some cases is if it's too absurd, you just dismiss it out of hand. You have to have a certain level of believability, if that's a word, Um, and obviously it can't be something that's actually true. So you have to you have to stray from the truth, but not too far. And it, it raises the point you made just a few minutes ago talking about. The, the fact that you've got in fake news stories, you've got like misinformation mixed in with actual fact and accurate information. And those are the most powerful ones where you kind of salted that, that real information with fake stuff. So it's, it's really hard to separate things out. And I, th- I think sometimes getting children to have a little go making it is a good way of helping them understand the nuance of actually, if you say, uh, you know, Kardashian's just been beamed up by aliens. No one's going to believe that because it's just complete nonsense. You you need to go for something a little bit more nuanced and closer to the truth. And I I think that can be a really really powerful experience. That that's my take. Though, what, what, why don't you like it? Well, you make a good argument. Um, I, <laughs> I just I just I don't. There's something about it. I don't really like the idea of getting kids to do stuff that is not the ethical behavior as a way of helping them to learn about I just there's something about it I don't quite like do you know what I mean I I've not yeah, given I them all that. the tools to go off and do it I understand. <laughs> and I'm like mm, mm, I don't know I don't know it feels a bit I don't know maybe it's just me well I, I don't, who, who knows it's just the two of us chatting now so. yeah I, I I see education I see the classroom as a safe space to be able to talk about and discuss these things in a way that maybe you couldn't if you were, you know, chatting to your child at home or you're in another kind of setting. So I, I kind of like the ability to kind of mess around and play around these things because I'm I'm kind of a firm believer if you start to understand how these things work better, you, you're not drawn in by them. It's I, I might have used this in the previous podcast, this whole expression <laughs> of like the magic trick. You know, you can still enjoy a magic trick by a magician, but if you know how it works, the trick behind it, it doesn't draw yeah. you in in the same way anymore. And I, th- I think that's a really powerful thing is giving that knowledge and understanding of how these things work, even to the point that you could go away and do it yourself because then it, it's down to a choice as to whether or not you do it. But then you may be able to recognize it more readily when you see it going on in the real world. I get you. And I think there is something, there's some merit there. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I, do you know what's really interesting with that is does knowing how something work mean that we don't fall for it. And actually, you know, so much of the media literacy education is based on that principle, isn't it? Once we explain the mechanics, we won't fall for it anymore. And I'm I'm not convinced by that. I think I think the mechanics are one thing, but the the manipulation is 
is something else. That's but hey, yeah, who no, knows? That's a fair Don't point. Know. That's a fair point. And a number of parts of the manipulation prey on psychological vulnerabilities, which means that even if you did know about it, you're you're right. You probably could get drawn in. Again, I kind of sometimes liken it though to um, if you go into like a shop, like you can do that at the moment, and uh, buy something, and, and like someone gives you a sales pattern. Say you're going to go buy like a sofa or a car or something like that. You know, you've got a salesperson there who's who's trying to sell you the, mm. the, the highest, you know, sort of value item that they can. Basically, they want to meet your needs, but they also want to, you know, sort of make some commission or whatever. You know that you're going to be sold to. You know what their ultimate aim is. And you, but I kind of feel that you have a choice as to whether or not you go along with that. It's it's a bit like a dance, isn't it? Almost you kind of it's a kind of back and forth. It's same way of like haggling works with sales as well. Is that you you kind of know what the other person is trying to do, and you at some point end up kind of meeting in the middle. And sometimes you you win and you get what you want. Sometimes you don't. You kind of get drawn the other way further down their path. Maybe, maybe it's a bit like that. I suppose in your analogy. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go on anymore about this. I suppose what I would think is it's okay to teach somebody about some sales techniques, but I wouldn't want to teach them how to make a sale at all costs. You know, all the techniques you could use at your. Dis- <laughs> do you know what I mean? But hey, don't know, don't know. Jury's out on that one. Oh, we, I guess okay, we do okay, need I'll, to find I'll, lots I'll of ways point to. On that though, so what about? So, <laughs> and that's that's a genuine question, and and I totally understand where you're coming from in terms of ethics and 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 morals and principles on this. But there's lots of stuff out there that promotes positive nudges of behaviour. So, for example, and this isn't internet related, but like the donor card, it used to be you had to actively say that you wanted your organs donated after death. Now it's just like a an assumption, isn't it? Unless you opt out, your organs mm. are going to be donated after your death, um, and unless you've said otherwise. And that's what's called a positive nudge, because actually most people are fine with that one. The people who aren't would opt out. So why not make it a, a default position for many people? So it, it, surely it's the way in which it's, it's used. But these same techniques can be used for positive means. That's how you know sales and marketing can be used for very positive things if you're a charity or an organization trying to spread a really important message. Okay. So, so we're gonna teach kids how to create fake news for positive ends. That's what? <laughs> that's potential because actually, you know, if you think about the conspiracy theory stuff, part of that is recognizing that on the one hand, you've had organisations that are peddling these kind of views, and they've got a whole PR machine going on, you know, a whole kind of marketing arm, and then on the other hand, you've got you know the the traditional uh, public service, if you like, who hasn't really had to think about doing any of that, and now maybe needs to, so needs to start using the same techniques to, you know, kind of explain the obvious. I think. I, don't know. I think to to add some evidence to that of, of the importance of that is that we've seen in terms of uh, things like radicalization online in the last decade, that the groups that wanted to get people to their cause and and to tie into the, to buy into their beliefs used to put out really blurry choppy terrible videos of content of people speaking and you know proclaiming things now they use social media and video platforms in a way that is as sophisticated and as high quality as the best biggest companies because the technology is there so i i think it is really important to to kind of understand how to how to mm. create this content, play around this content. As you, I t- I, I'm not taken away from your point at all. I totally agree. The, it's the motive behind it. It's the intention behind it and what you're actually trying to get other people to do. Um, and how can you justify it if it's, 
you know, so trying to get people to do good things. It's like, is that justifiable to manipulate people if it is for a greater good? I can't Fabulous question. It's a great Ooh, that's a good one. That. that is a good one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, we better finish up. Yeah, we're, we're kind of over time. We've, we've, got, we've gone sort of all over the place with this one, haven't we? Very we certainly have. Well, there you are. The kind of discussions that you can have with children and young people on this would be fascinating, I have no doubt. So, uh, to finish up then, as we always do, uh, we always offer you a chance to, to throw a question or issue our way. So if you'd like us to discuss it on a future podcast, please do get in touch by emailing us at podcast at swgfl.org.uk. And as we always like to do, Jess, we like to give a recommendation. So something that you've read, watched, listened to, what's your recommendation this time around? Okay, I've got two. Uh, yeah, I'm on fire today. So <laughs> first one is... Uh, Five Rights Foundation has just released um, Freedom, Security, Privacy, the Future of Children in the Digital World. And it's got some great quotes on there from uh, Five Rights Young Leaders. So the the website to go to is freedomreport.fiverightsfoundation, and that's five as in five the number, fiverightsfoundation.com forward slash quotes. Got some great quotes in there from from young people, and what's on there the whole website is lots of essays from people in you know ac- across the world actually in the online safety space about different aspects of, of kind of young people and their rights online and the future of childhood and all that kind of stuff. So that's my kind of worky type one to have a look at. Um, for fun, uh, we just watched uh, the film Eurovision. Have you seen it? I haven't. No, my other half watched oh it the God. other day though. Oh, oh, I love it. Will Farrell, uh, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, and loads of it is filmed in Edinburgh. Woohoo! So yeah, absolutely loved it. And of course, it's 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 funny, right? It's 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 tongue in cheek. And I love and I love Edinburgh, Jess. It's one of my favourite places. But surely that makes the whole film a whole fake news story, does it not? Because it would imply that at some point the UK had won the Eurovision Song Contest in order to host yeah. it in Edinburgh. Totally. Yeah, that was the first thing the kids said when. Totally <laughs> unbelievable. Don't believe that. <laughs> it's <laughs> brilliant go and watch it love it excellent I, okay I what have you got have you got something to recommend yeah so mine's, mine's <laughs> a non-worky related one but uh i i've recently started rereading catch 22 by joseph heller which is uh, a book that some people love and some people hate and i i read it years ago on holiday mainly because i wanted to know where the expression catch 22 came from and i read the book and this was about i don't know 15 years ago and, and i've completely forgotten since then why why it was called catch 22 so i've gone back to reread it um and maybe maybe it fits quite nicely in with our whole discussion today because it's quite paradoxical and it, it's kind of yeah it it it's it kind of messes with your brain a little bit but i i, I find it really enjoyable as a book i like stories like that they really get you to question things and, and question people as well wow never read that one okay i should have to give it a go okay so uh thank you for listening to this swgfl podcast if you found our podcast helpful please spread the word to your fellow educators as always if you have a query about an online safety issue affecting a young person yourself or your organization you can contact the Professionals Online Safety Helpline at helpline at saferinternet.org.uk. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the podcast, don't forget to drop us an email at podcast at swgfl.org.uk. A better internet starts with you. Goodbye. This Safeguarding Children online podcast has been produced by SWGFL. Southwest Grid for Learning is a charity that has specialised in online safety for nearly 20 years and is one of the three partners in the UK Safer Internet Centre. The UK Safer Internet Centre is the national centre and one of 32 European Safer Internet Centres. For more information and terms of use, 
please visit www.swgfl.org.uk. Thanks for listening.